Hi, I'm here with Adam Pierce from Blend Commerce. We're going to talk all about usability today. So, Adam, would you like to tell us about your company and how you got the idea for it? Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Trevor. So, um, you said we started uh, e-commerce agency probably about five years ago, and I think like a lot of people in e-commerce, you know, it's not a very mature mature industry, and we kind of come from different areas. So. I've actually been a teacher, I've been a management consultant, I'd worked for an education app company, and my brother-in-law, Peter, who was a quantity surveyor, decided to retrain to be a developer. And he came to me kind of seven years ago and said, look, there's this brand new platform called Shopify, I think it's going to be the next big thing, at which point I'm thinking, yeah, probably not. Um, and I was wrong. And basically what we decided to do is at the time is there weren't really many people offering both on the development and design aspect, as well as marketing for Shopify stores, because it was such in its infancy. Um, and sort of five years on, we now work with a lot of brands in the US and the UK, really looking at what the experience is like of kind of before being a customer, during and then after as well. So now that's kind of what we, we focus on when it comes to Shopify. So do you do the, uh, the development of sites that really just, you know, someone comes to you with a site and then you improve the experience or do you build a site as well? What's your, what's the kind of internet service? Yeah, we, we tend to work with existing sites. And the reason for that is because a lot of what we're doing is going to be based on both the quantitative and the qualitative data. So when it comes to kind of starting a brand new store, it's quite difficult then to do that if you haven't really got a lot to work with. So we like to talk to existing customers of that brand, as well as looking at all the kind of metrics that you'd expect an agency to look at. So it's predominantly people coming to say, look, let's improve what we have now in terms of immediate terms from redesigning the experience. Um, and a lot of other brands will work with us over, you know, a course of sort of 12 or 18 months to say, right, let's make this a more gradual thing that we're doing then to try and improve that big end goal that we've got. Okay, so I mean, do your do people tend to use like a template, or do they tend to use a you know have their own bespoke theme? Yeah, I mean, the uh, even very very big brands, so you know, sort of multinational companies will tend to use the Shopify theme, um, and then sort of tweak that. And I say tweak it, I should say heavily customize that rather. But there are a lot of fantastic themes out there, um, but tend to what's happened is that you will take those and then customize them to give a a better experience to A, make them faster, um, B, bring in more functionality. But I don't think there is necessarily a need now to, to kind of build from scratch. Um, There's so many things out there. No, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think headless is a big buzzword at the moment. Um, so the kind of the, the concept that you don't sort of need to have that core theme, uh, and you're not sort of necessarily building on Shopify. But I would say, you know, a lot of that at the moment is kind of reserved for the big multinational brands that need that. I think there's a lot of overkill with, with headless commerce at the moment where smaller brands think they need it. And reality is you can heavily customize the theme to give you, you know, close to the kind of results you would get with headless. Okay. So, I mean, in the age of, obviously, you know, I've been involved in websites for the last 15 years, right? Now I've, you know, the first one I built, I basically specced it all out. I've got some developers to you know, do a theme for Magento and whatever. You know, one of the beautiful things about Shopify is plug and play, you install a theme and you can get some themes which are pretty good out of the box. And then it all they all use the same uh, checkout. Mm -hmm. um, does that mean that it's 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 easier for people like you to improve things or does it make it more difficult to make any any difference? Well, tell me about what is what is usability in the age of Shopify? 
I think that, yeah, it's, it's a good point because I think, you know, especially over the past few years with everything that's happened in the world, the, the level of competition that there is huge. And, you know, e-commerce essentially grew 10 years worth of growth in three months at the start of the pandemic. So there is, like I say, there's a lot more competition out there of people with very similar stores. But I think in a way, it, it kind of makes it easier for brands and for agencies like us because you have a lot of, you know, a lot of people starting these up where everything kind of looks the same. So the more of that volume, you doing something that's different tends to kind of stick out a little bit more because if you've got the same experience and then you come to a site that doesn't have it, it kind of gives that, oh, that wow moment. And I think, you know, for me, if you think about usability and customer experience, I'm almost a bit perturbed by this kind of word of personalization that's becoming to kind of the, the e-com lexicon in the past couple of years, because I think for a lot of people, they feel that personalization is all about, you know, making sure that, you know, you have lots of information about that client on a website. And for me, personalization is part of usability and part of customer experience in that when the person comes to that site, you are displaying something to them that is meaningful for them and you are giving them a way to get to a product that's going to be most useful. So it's, it's not necessarily about, you know, kind of using names or using data personalization. It's about making sure that you understand, right, where have they come from in terms of the traffic source? What information have they seen about you before? And then can you personalize the homepage experience different to, let's say, for somebody, if you've directed someone from an Instagram follower to your page versus from a, a, a organic Google search, that's the way you can make a difference to, to give people a different experience. Okay, so what are the, I mean, you know, I'm actually launching a Shopify store in a few weeks. What are the things that, you know, we're building a theme, which we're going to customize? What are the, you know, the things that we can do to immediately make our, our experience, you know, better and stand out from other people? Mm. I, I think the, the thing that always, you know, perturbs me a little bit with when you look at sites is that, you know, in the good old days, people would have a home page and a boundless page, and there will be lots of great information on those. So in terms of the production process, the quality, the guarantees that they offer. And then what you would do is you would go to then obviously a product page. And essentially what you're saying there is a description of the product and there is a call to action to buy. Now, of course, you've got to have that, which is important, but ultimately that customer coming to that product page is probably not, and I say in most cases, is not going to go and read that great information you have about your ethics, about your brand in the home yeah. page. So bringing that into that product page below the call to action is important because they're going to be verifying you. They're essentially saying, look, can we trust this brand? Can we, you know, do we want to give them our credit card details? Getting that in there. And I think that, you know, as a first step, you know, if you're building right now, I will be checking that that information is there so that people are verifying you based on just that one page not having to navigate everywhere. So that, okay. that's an important point. So having what kind of social proof and, and what got, um, guarantees and stuff, all that information on the product page and, and also, you know, I suppose in the Shopify checkout, you have less opportunity, presumably you want to bring that information as much as possible to the checkout as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with the checkout, obviously, there is there is limitations in terms of what you can do, you know, with, with basic, with, or I'd say basic Shopify, Shopify, the, the kind of package that, is, that most people use. You know, when you go to Shopify Plus, there are more options there to be able to kind of customize that checkout experience. And obviously, it depends on where a brand is, whether Shopify Plus makes sense. But I think the key thing is that when you are putting people through 
to that checkout page, making sure they're clear about what experience they're going to get. So for example, you know, if you know that with your product that actually, you know, that person is going to get a verification email from you within, you know, an hour, you can give that information on your product page. And it, it sounds a bit daft because obviously they're going to get that, but ultimately again, are you addressing the fears of that customer on that product page? And I think that's what we've got to think about when we're trying to get people to convert is, are they comfortable enough to then go to the next step with you? And then I think after that, you know, the, the big mistake I think a lot of people make is that is the, the follow-up or the post-purchase post email flow. We're obsessed with reviews, aren't we? You know, that we, we send out, you know, we, we send a thank you for purchasing with us. And then pretty much what happens is you're going to get a review email saying, hey, please give us a five-star review. So for me, the biggest mistake there is that you're forgetting the different steps that that customer is going through. So I think, Trevor, you were saying before, you know, your products were, um, your, your products you were selling, were they for children? Yeah, they're for children, for preschool products, yeah. Okay, so preschool support. So give me an example of a product you're selling, for example, if you don't mind. Like a toy. Let's just say a push-along toy for a child. Okay, so push-along toy. So for me, you know, straight away what I'm thinking is, right, first of all, they're going to get that email to say thank you for purchasing. The next step then is obviously when that toy is going to be delivered. So how are they feeling at that moment when the toy is being delivered? Can we check in with that customer to say, hope everything got to you okay. If there's any problems at all, contact our customer support for this level. Now, if it's a toy... I would imagine that what's going to happen is that that toy is going to be given to that child probably on that day and they're going to be playing with it immediately. So from your point of view, the first touch of that product, the first use of it, the evaluation of that stage is probably going to be within 24 hours. So, you know, if you, for example, know the person saying, you know, uh, how did, you know, your son, daughter, whatever it might be, if you have that information, get on with this toy in the first day. Have they enjoyed playing with it? Again, another check, check in point. A week later, you know, now they've kind of really got to grips with it. Maybe they've been playing with it quite a bit. Um, you know, another check-in point then. And after that, then it's the point to then sort of ask for the review. So they're going through on this end as the customer, these different phases of interacting with your products and your company. You want to make sure they're happy with those. And then you've got a much better chance of then getting that positive review and then ultimately getting them back to come back for the next product. And I think that's, we, we sometimes, you know, we celebrate when we make a sale. You know, I do it as, as an agency owner. Yeah, you know, we've got another client, great. But the problem is, is that that's just the starting of the journey for that customer. And I think as business owners, we sometimes forget that and we need to go back to that sort of post-sale process to make sure that you've got those check-in points with them as they then go on to be a longer-term customer. Okay, well, I think this, this, this leads on to my next question, right? You know, for you, what does customer experience encompass so obviously there's the actual should we say the physical website that's probably the wrong thing but then there's also you know there's the the offer there's the shipping there's the reviews there's the website speed um there's the emails for you where does your job start and where does it end mm. for me the, the starting point is that we need to be talking with the acquisition uh team or the acquisition agency if they're running ads at that point to find out right the kind of target customer that you're you're going for where do they need to land what is the information that that demographic or that subset of people that you have need to go so for us that's where we would need to start because ultimately if they don't then have a landing page that's appropriate for that audience we need to be able to create that for them 
But then after that, you know, speed is always going to be a super important thing. But what I would say with that is there's a caveat with it. There is an obsession, obviously, about us running Google speed tests. You know, we all do it. We go and do a Google speed test and Google comes back with, you know, some green ticks and, you know, red minuses. And we go, hey, look, we need to sort out speed. But again, with your site, which are the most important pages? Where are people dwelling the most? Where are you sending most traffic to? Because ultimately, you want to focus on those pages where people are most likely to be landing on first. So you don't need to tackle it as a, right, this is a whole site speed performance perspective. It might actually just be, right, your PDP page or your product pages. Let's get those as fast as they possibly can be. So it might just be a bit of simple image optimization. It might be that you're using some apps that are very heavy in terms of page load. So by taking some of those away, it might actually then improve that. And then from that point onwards, then we're going to go into things that, you know, that people commonly think about. What are my images like? What are my descriptions like? What are the tabs available to get more information? And then from that then point, it is the kind of that, that once you've got them into that post-purchase flow, that's where the biggest attention is. And I think if you think about any business, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, everyone's guilty of it. You put so much emphasis on that first part of, right, how do we get that customer in? that the budget and the thinking and the creativity tends to end at the point that they're committed to pay. So actually what we think about is that rather than looking at your spend, you know, of, of, of looking after a customer being high here and then going all the way down low to the point at which they purchase, think about leveling that out a little bit more because ultimately then you're going to have a much better chance of if you pay to bring a customer in, retaining them, and then obviously the cost of them retaining that customer is going to be very small in comparison to going out into the market and trying to bring new people into acquisition. Okay. So what are the, the usability KPIs that, you know, that, that, that people should be focused on, focusing on? Mm. So the, the overall picture for us, when we kind of look at customer experience, we're looking at customer lifetime value. So what that metric does for us is that it incorporates not only things like obviously the amount of revenue, but also your gross margin. It also looks at your cost of acquisition. So all of those things go into that number for you to then be evaluated, right? When I have a customer coming into me, what are they actually worth? So that then gives a much better idea of, right, how much is it worth committing for acquisition? How much is it worth committing for retention to understand how much they're going to bring in? But when it comes to, to kind of thinking beyond that measure, there are obviously things that we tend to have a go-to, things like conversion rate, things like speed and average order value. They all kind of fall into customer lifetime value, but I think the problem is we kind of get a little bit obsessed with one of those. And conversion rate is, is a prime example because look, ultimately, you know, yes, you could increase your conversion rate by 20% or you know, your conversion rate goes from 3% to 4%. So fantastic, yeah, it means that yes, you know, more people are spending, but do you still have the same level of traffic? In which case, that's not a good thing. Um, do you also as well with that, how much are you paying to acquire those customers? And I think this is kind of a little bit of a disease that we have in e-commerce is that there's, you know, when you go onto Facebook and Instagram, you know, you see all these gurus with their, you know, rented Ferraris and rented Lamborghinis talking about <laughs> you know, bought I million. bought my Lamborghinis. <laughs> <laughs> that's mine. Exactly. But it's, it's, you know, for me, it's just, it's completely smoke and mirrors because, you know, let's face it, 
yes, you might be able to bring in a million dollars worth of sales, but if it's kind, you know, it's cost you nine hundred fifty thousand dollars to do that, plus your effort. Well, what's the point? Yes. Um, and I think that's what we've got to get away from in e-commerce of thinking about it in that sort of, you know, that kind of shallow metric that that I think conversion rate is. Okay. So what's your what's your preferred metric? What would you what would be your three go-to things you'd look at at a new site? So if we're looking at a site in terms of, of making sure that the, the customer experience is great, the end goal, of course, is customer lifetime value. But the things that we want to be looking at are, number one, what is the average order value at that stage? How good is the speed of the key pages that you're sending your traffic to? And then finally, what actually is your cost of acquisition when it comes to bringing customers to those sites? Even if you don't look at customer lifetime value, those three things are going to give you the biggest um, understanding of what you then need to do. So, you know, if it is, for example, looking at the um, the AOV, you can see the average order value, what level it's at, and if it's going up and down, analyzing that based on the different customers that come in, that's going to be super important because what you'll always see with any company is that the average order value of a of a, of a customer. Will depend will usually be dependent upon what traffic source they come from and equally you know if you get more deeper into the data so looking at things like rfm segmentation where you're looking at that recency the frequency the monetary aspects of a customer different groups will behave differently and you can then target the most important group so it, it is about starting small and then getting bigger um but for me yeah those would be the three things from an initial point of view i'll be looking at Okay, so I'm going to ask you some some you know some questions that I'm interested in usability. Okay, mm. free shipping or not free shipping in the UK? So for me, the free shipping question is all about margins, and the biggest thing that I would say is that you want to be looking at your thresholds, and the thresholds for me should always for free shipping should be about pushing up your AOV. So if, for example, you look at your store. And you're saying, right, currently, our AOV presently is £45. Now, from that perspective, if you then look at it and say, well, actually, if we can then increase that AOV to £55, what impact does that then make on my margin? So then it makes sense for you to sort of analyse, right, does that free shipping point work out? And I, but I would say that is the, the, the way to use free shipping is about pushing up the average order value opposed to anything else. What about okay? So my experience is with uh, you know obviously if you if you um, and I was talking about free shipping over to free shipping for everything. Mm. Right? Should you more? My question is: should you in, should you include the shipping in the item cost? Thereby, you know, have like a landed price that people just see, and that is the price. Um, does that convert better, or you know, how does that affect the conversion rate if they get this checkout and they find they have to you know pay five pounds and they have to go and find another few items? Mm. Real life problem I have. No, I mean, okay, so for me, what I'd be saying is no, to, to not lump that in, because the, the reason being is that because Google Shopping has become so prevalent now and the way people are searching is then also going into Google Shopping and listing by price, ultimately then you are then giving yourself a disadvantage because you're being pushed down that list. The thing is, though, that if you are doing the right things in terms of explaining to people why it's you they need to come to, you know, if, is there guarantees? How long have you been in business? What are the products that you offer? What are you know? What is your loyalty program? What are the rewards of being a customer with your brand? 
then actually going to that point of saying, okay, well, yes, there is going to be shipping and being clear about that before they get to the checkout process, for me is always going to be the winning formula because ultimately, again, your customers, when they're in that phase of kind of making that decision of who they're going to shop with, yes, okay, you know, price is going to be a factor, but ultimately price tends to be the first thing that people look at in terms of their verification. So yeah, for me, my answer would be is no, have that yeah. additional, but also try to have options with your shipping because there might be, you know, that standard shipping, the expedited shipping. For me, that's part of the customer service. You're giving them more options to be able to get that product sooner or faster depending on their needs. Okay, right. Next question, loyalty programs. Mm. Yes or no? Loyalty programs are generally very poorly done. Um, and what I say with that is that, you know, the common thing with loyalty programs is let's have a loyalty program. We'll offer some points when they buy and then we'll give them a discount of five pounds every time they get to the number of points. Two for problems with that. One is, do people sign into their loyalty program rewards and do they know how many they've got? No. Um, if I ask the average UK Tesco club card member, how many points have you got? They would not have the foggiest because ultimately the communication you get about what you have there to use isn't available. So when it comes to loyalty programs, the key thing for me is that you need to be, if you're going to do it, number one, have a tiered program. And what I mean by that is that as you spend more and go through a particular chain, you then basically get access to different certain benefits. So a good one there, Trev, you know, and we've done this with brands before, is that when you get to kind of their silver tier in terms of how much you spend, you then get free shipping on your products. So that's kind of a benefit you can offer. Um, the other thing as well, you know, that I think is completely underutilized with, with loyalty programs is, are you able to give them something free that is a lower cost or lower impact on your margin than giving them a discount? And I'll give a good example of this is Sephora. So Sephora, what they do is that when you reach the top level of their beauty loyalty rewards program, they will send you through in the post a secret lipstick. And what this lipstick is, is a shade that isn't available anywhere at all in their retail stores and online. And what it basically does for them is that, A, it signals to that customer, okay, you are now one of our most important customers. It creates a big social media buzz for them and it gives that customer that great feeling of, oh, well, hey, I've got a free product and this is actually an exclusive product. Now, if you think about that production cost of a lipstick, versus going out to all those customers with saying, well, actually, we're going to give you 10% off your next order or $15 off, $20 off. The impact on the margin there is going to be a lot more extensive. But actually, what you're doing by doing that is making feel, people feel more special, but getting the benefit of encouraging them to stay with you as a loyal customer longer, opposed to kind of these throwaway discounts that we tend to give. So yeah, loyalty brains can be good, but they need to be planned out in tiers. And there needs to be a real tangible benefit of working through those tiers. Just giving out points, frankly, waste of time. Okay, that's good. Um, two more questions. Payment options. Mm. Do you have multiple, how many payment options is enough payment options? What is, you know, so, okay, for example, just about to set up a Shopify store, we used to accept, you know, credit cards through Stripe and we used to do PayPal. And we have done Amazon Pay, but no one really seemed to use it. And it was expensive. So now we go to ShopPay. Shop pay basically, we, if you shop pay, it's 1.1% or something. If we want to use PayPal as well, we have to pay an extra 0.5%. So we're thinking we'll just use shop pay, right? Um, what, you know, what are the 
are the payment options you think that everyone should be offering? Should we be, is it, is it important that we offer PayPal as well or ShopPay or something? Yes, I would say if you can offer as many different payment methods possible. Now, I know that's not what you want to hear because obviously- No, I don't hear that, you're right. Yeah, it's with me. So we have this conversation a lot because you know ultimately the different payment providers will take different different levels from you. But the reason I say that is that again, for those new customers that are coming in, what that does is two things. One is that it instills that trust that they're going to have a secure checkout experience um, because some customers may not be familiar with the limited ones that you have. But secondly, it also then is giving them another option to use from a customer experience point of view. And if you're kind of closing them down to that one channel, you know, for example, American customers we find particularly are very keen on using PayPal. I think there is less, but there, there is definitely a, some sort of brand loyalty to that in the UK. Um, but I would say that that is a sign for them of, of kind of that trust. It's almost like kind of an SSL certificate. You know, the, yes. the site is secure. Um, and it, I think similarly now, you know, the, the thing with Apple Pay and Google Pay, um, it's that kind of convenience level. And I think kind of particularly with the kind of, you know, the, the younger millennials and sort of Gen Z, Gen Z generation, there is an expectation that that will be there because they're yeah. managing their finances by simply looking at their phone. So yes, you know, it, it is a pain because obviously you have to have those available and there is more cost there with it because you're paying those processing fees and then giving, you know, a different percentage to Shopify with it. But ultimately, is that better to cut into your margin at that point rather than losing that sale if you don't have those options available? Would be so what would you say? You would say, okay, from my point of view, so ShopPay or for credit cards, say, mm -hmm. you think PayPal, uh, would you go for anything else? Yeah, so Shopify payments, um, Apple Pay. Um, and no, that, that includes Apple Pay and GPay, doesn't it, I think. Mm -hmm. um, what about, do you think Amazon Pay? What was your, or do you think just just a credit card option and PayPal, would that be sufficient? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, the, the thing with Amazon Pay is that we tend to recommend Amazon Pay when you have a brand that has done very well on Amazon and is trying to migrate customers over to a Shopify store. Because again, ultimately, you know, with that situation, if a customer is used to it, transacting with you on Amazon, you know, getting someone to come over to you, that, that store is tricky. Um, a lot of brands have tried and it, it is hard, but if you're giving that signal to them that look, your experience is actually going to be similar because you can pay in the same way you used to, I think that's that's beneficial. But in terms of using Amazon Pay as, as a payment gateway, just generally, if you don't have a big Amazon following, um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sort of plus either way on that. Okay. And my final question about this, uh, website speed. I mean, basically, I, it, it's very easy for website developers to basically take your, your, your website, in my case, it used to be Magento, and just say, look, it's really, really slow. And then you end up spending loads of money and they make it a tiny, tiny, tiny bit faster after. Um, what, is, how, what is good performance is my question. How do you measure good performance? Because, I mean, I, I just, you know, you can, you know, you could take my current website and you can put it into one of these speed tests and tell you it's awful. But then you take John Lewis's website, it doesn't perform an awful lot better. So what is, you know, what is good performance? And how do you, how do you identify it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's like if you take the Google site and put Google through the, the speed checker, you're also going to get lots of, of red minuses. 
which kind of makes it a bit of an ironic you know thing that you think you're doing so if you've got like a one page <laughs> wordpress site it does quite well i think mm. well, yeah i mean that that that's great but you're not going to sell anything and I think no. for me taking that high level metric overall is not really important for me, I will be looking at the, the page speed of the key pages where the most of the traffic is going and focus your efforts there. So a lot of people will tell you, look, what you're looking for is you know, now that the, the kind of the new metric that we all agree on allegedly um, is 2.7 seconds load. That's the maximum that it should be on page load for a home page. The difficult thing with it is that with techniques that are used in Shopify, you have things like lazy load. And simply all this means is that when you go onto a Shopify website, someone's deploying lazy loads, what's going to happen is that the elements at the top of that screen are going to load first. And actually the customer is not going to see, but the stuff at the bottom of the page is still loading while they're reading at the top. Now that experience is great because I can yeah. see the hero image, I can read the text, I can click on the call to action, but from Google's point of view, your page has not loaded that first page. So nice. that's why you've got to look at the speed reports with a bit of a pinch of salt because you've got to actually look at what that experience is. And I think things like user testing, which you can do with you know lots of different companies offer it, you know, sort of virtually, and getting people, real users, to interact with it and record their experience, because that for me is going to be the better measure of test. And yes, that isn't, you know, it isn't scalable to get bags and bags of quantitative data, but that's going to give you a better impression of what needs to be done. But honestly, you know, when you think about Shopify brands, majority of traffic that people are sending to is going to be that product page. And there are always so many things you can do there to improve that speed. Typically, because so I mean, I, you know, obviously with Shopify, you don't have, you know, on the lower levels, mm. you don't have access to the back end. What can you actually do on the shop page to, you know, to, to really improve it? Mm. What are the key things? So the key things on the actual product page, number one is always going to be image optimization. A lot of people will go- Are there plugins for that that you can use or? There are, there's, there's lots of, of different ones. I think there's, there's one called uh, Sweet Picks, which a lot of people tend to use. And all that will do is basically take down, if you've got sort of, um, uh, sort of you know, really high resolution um, images, it's not going to take away a lot of that quality. Um, but what it will do is take away a lot of that, that impact in terms of the size of the file. So therefore that product page is gonna load a heck of a lot quicker. The other thing as well is that when you are using apps like um, review apps, for example, and you've also maybe got an on-site chat widget, those two things together, again, have a very high load. Now, what you've got to think about is that, right, if I have, for example, reviews, if you're using like a heat mapping software, like for example, Lucky Orange or Hotjar, looking at that and saying, well, actually, are people clicking on all of these reviews? Now, what you can do with a lot of review programs is that you can limit the amount of reviews that load on that page. Straight away, you're going to benefit that because you've lowered the, the code that is coming through and that's going to speed up. What a lot of people do is that they will allow 10 or 15 reviews in a product page. Frankly, who has ever read through 15 reviews of one product? You look at maybe two or three, and you see this when you look at heat mapping, and actually what a lot of people do is that they literally skim past that. It's almost like a sort of a, a subliminal message that's coming through that they see the stars and okay, that's good enough for me. So I think being lean with the information that you put on there from an app point of view 
that's what we need to think about on those product pages. And a lot of people will have things like, you know, um, a um, exit intent pop-up that's a spinner, a spinning wheel. People still use those quite a lot. Those have a big impact on page load speed. Now, what I'm not saying is that you shouldn't use them if they work. If you can prove there's an ROI attached to that, great. Um, but a lot of the time, those things don't really tend to turn the needle in getting people to put their credit card details in. So being careful with those things is, is super important. Okay. So, okay, so quickly, let's, how about the top five tips for improving Shopify usability? Mm. So number one, <laughs> one is focus on the speed of the high traffic pages. Most typically is going to be your, your product page. Measured how? Um, measured how through your page insights report from Google on that particular page. And then what you're doing from that then is making changes in terms of the app stack you're using on that and then retesting it to see if it's faster or one of the many other you know, free speed tools are out there are perfectly fine for doing that. But use one tool and use the reporting from that. Do not go and use three or four different speed tools because each will tell you different things. What you're looking for is the improvement within one tool to get there. So for okay. me, that's, that's definitely the, the first thing you should do. The second thing is, is go and pull all of that key information from your home page, your about us page onto the product page. Now that's not gonna give you um, a big load because a lot of that is gonna be text-based copying. You'll be paraphrasing it. Things like, for example, your trust indicator icons that you're using on your home and your about us page, bringing those into the product page is, is super important. So that's kind of the, the next phase of the journey. The third thing is, is that when it comes to your call to action button or your buy now button, what is directly below that buy button? And a lot of the time people do not include things like whether it is free shipping or not, whether there is any kind of guarantee, um, whether it is handmade in Britain, handmade in the USA, because ultimately those bits of information that you have there, those are is really your last message to someone before they're deciding whether they're going to click or not. So that's the next part of that experience. So I think that would be my, my third tip. Getting so what, I, I look at so the buy now buttons that put some messaging underneath the buy, button, buy now button. Yes. A lot of people will leave that blank. Um, and the problem is at that point is you've got to remember that the person's eye is going directly around that buy now button. And if you're giving a message which makes them feel good and feeling they trust you, that's why you'll see with really good brands, they'll have little green check marks or check boxes below. Because again, you know, think about it from a psychology point of view, right? You're saying, tick green, tick green, tick green, good, okay. Being positive this is a good thing. I should be doing this, right? Yeah, the inclination then is that if you've got that green light to do something, you're going to go ahead and do it. So that would kind of be you know, my third thing. The fourth thing is, and this, you know, if, if anyone is going to do anything around customer experience, look at your post purchase flow. And we talked about it before, Trevor, you know, with the example with the toy. What I would say you would do is, you know, if you're listening to this and thinking about your brand, go and think about what it is like as a customer to get that and then what you're going to be doing with it. Now, whether it's a toy, whether it is a new pair of trousers, whether it's a food product, the point at which you're going to interact with that in the first taste, on the first touch, on the first wear is going to be very different. And then the usage of that and the frequency of usage is going to be different. So think about what that customer goes through and check in with them at those key pivotal points, because that's going to be the thing that's going to get them coming back. And then I would say that the last point is that when it comes to kind of, you know, the, the, the much further 
point down the line is that what are you then doing for those customers who have come back to you for the second time to get them through to the third, the fourth and the fifth time? And for me, that is always going to be about trying to then give them something additional from a customer experience point of view, like going out to them and saying, hey, it looks like, you know, you bought the brown pair of shoes and the black pair of shoes. We wondered actually if you'd be interested in this great new pair of tan shoes that we bought out, which are very similar. Right, okay, makes sense. You know, you're listening to me, you've seen what I've purchased. There's something here that I might be interested in. What kind of tool would you use to do that? Um, there's, there's quite a few things now. We, a lot of the time we will use Clavio um, for email marketing and, and Clavio has got within there its own kind of product recommendation engine. Um, you can actually change that to be what you want it to be. And I would say that curating that is a really good thing to do. Now, for example, what you can do is if you look at your sales data and say, well, actually, we can see a pattern here is that when people go in and buy, you know, that scuffle bug, I'm thinking about things that my little girls use, is that they then typically will then tend to go on to buy when they're in six months time, um, the, the child's first bike, for example. So if you know that that's kind of trajectory that that type of customer is going through when they buy that product, you can then do, do those product recommendations yourself. I think the worst thing in the world is that when you, you know, and a, and a really bad company at this, and I'm sorry guys, but um, the, um, the name's gone on the head, Wayfair. Wayfair are terrible at this. If you ever buy them from Wayfair, what will happen is you'll get an email from them with product recommendations in from six or seven different categories and then there'll be three or four products in each of those categories. Now I get recommendations from them, the last email I got for rugs. The, the only thing that I had ever bought from Wayfair, believe it or not, was a toilet brush holder for my bathroom and kind of a soap dispenser matching set. So what indication have they got from me that I'm looking at saying, well, that I would then want to go and buy a rug. So it, it's about, you know, that, make, that making sense of what are the likely things that they're then going to buy next? What's the next thing in that journey you want them to go down with you? So just being sensible with it is, is key. So let me tell you, okay, so what, what is the site that you've done you're the most proud of in terms of usability that ticks all the boxes? Mm, really good question. I would say <clears throat> a great site that we've worked on most recently is probably the Aquarium Co-op site. Now, we've worked with them for quite a while, but the thing with Aquarium Cart, they're, they're kind of one of um, the US's biggest online aquarium retailers. So it feels like it's quite niche, but what we've done with them is that we know, based on the fact of the content they interact with on that blog, on, on that site and the blogs that they've read, the kind of products they're then most likely gonna be interested in. And it's not about pushing product down their throat. What it's about doing is actually People are very much wanting to read up and be knowledgeable about being a, 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 being a hobbyist in, in kind of having aquariums. So we will push them to different parts of content, which will then trigger information within those blogs about certain products that would be interesting. So for example, if you have a blog that is telling people, right, these are the three best ways to look after a puffer fish, at the end of that blog, what it's going to be doing is saying that if you, you know, have read through these steps, you might be interested in looking at the products that you mentioned here, which are this, this, this. You can buy these as a bundle here. So, right, I've consumed that information. I know what I need to do. 
now as a brand, you are giving them the tools to be able to do that thing that you just described to them. So for me, that you know, that is definitely one that I I think the usability and the the experience on is great. Now, I think people looking at that site, you know, people who aren't aquarium hobbyists will go, well, this doesn't look like you know a, a great site. You know, it's not all singing, all dancing. And I think that's what we've got to get away from is that having an overly pretty site sometimes works for some demographics, but actually it's about what you're giving to them on there and how they get to that thing that they want. And I think that was would be my kind of parting advice is that it's not it's not what it's not what appeals to you, it's what appeals to the customer audience. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. My last question, and this could be anything, right? On this day when Putin's trying to start World War Three, what has inspired you recently? <coughs> wow. Um, inspired me recently. And do you mean a person? Do you mean a thing that's you mean absolutely anything? I really thought Ted Lasso was a great TV series. It just made me, just cheered me up. There you go, yeah. anything. I love it. Books that we should read, music we should listen to. It could even be more than one thing if you're feeling extra specially inspired. Yeah, I think one one thing I've been inspired with, with most recently is I actually, um, I went to an event yesterday in London with um, my business partner. Um, it's something that we've kind of run, which is sort of for different e-commerce tech partners and agencies. And the thing for me yesterday is that we actually have, we took a couple of members of staff with us who have never done anything like this before. And they've only been with a short period of time. And for me, I really kind of saw them come out of their shell yesterday um, and actually saw them open up and walk around a room and have really good conversations with people. And I think the thing is, you know, that when you work in a company like ours, where it can be quite insular in respect, you're just focusing on those websites. We don't, you know, we don't really have face-to-face -face meetings. Kind of seeing my team, you know, really having a great time and, and letting other people have a great time through them being there in person was great. So, yeah, I, I'm super pumped from yesterday. And Oh, so to just actually being out, getting out of your shell post-COVID and actually, gosh, meeting real people. Exactly. That's good. Exactly. It's just, yeah, I, I personally, I, I suffer with depression. So being out there in the world is very important to me. So these past few weeks, um, we start doing it. Water swimming as well is apparently good for that. I've heard, I've heard. Um, <laughs> chicken to do it, though, Trevor, that's the problem. I think just take a cold shower. Look, it's been great talking to you. I've learned an awful lot about Shopify. Thanks for spending some time with us. No problem. Thank you, Trevor. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye. Stop recording.